Welcome to D20 Questions, your introduction to Greek philosophy. Uh, I am Zach, also known as Jean-Paul Sater. And I am Law, the man who puts the dumbass in Dungeon Master. (laughs) (laughs) And with us is the one and only uh, Keith Baker, who I would personally like to start a trend of referring to as Eberron Jeremy. How do you feel about that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll have to check with my hat. My hat makes all my important decisions for me. It's a a sorting hat of natures. Mm, Indeed. Yeah, this is the first time I've actually seen you without it on. It's it's actually a symbiont. It holds all my Eberron knowledge. You put it on and suddenly you're the man with the screaming brain. <laughs> we gotta get our hands on this hat. I mean, you know, mimics, I'm just saying, you usually see them as chests, but mm-hmm, they can just mm-hmm. as easily be clothes. And toilets. <laughs> oh, yeah, mimic a, toilet. Adhesive properties. Classic. Yeah, yeah, totally. Mm, terrifying. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure why I've never seen a picture of a mimic toilet, because it's just waiting to happen. I made a meme out of a mimic mm. toilet, but it was more of a, you know, a horror prompt. So what are you working on right now? What's your big projects? Like, I, I personally know, but I want to hear it from your mouth. Oh, fair enough. Uh, my big projects at the moment, I'm doing uh, various things with Eberron. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm working with Wizards on something that at the moment it's still under wraps. Uh, but I also just announced later this year I'm going to be releasing a book of my own. Currently, we're calling it Project Raptor mm-hmm. uh, because it was suggested that it should probably just be a 300-page book about dinosaurs. Nice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's going to be basically me exploring corners of Eberron that just have never been explored in the official content. There's lots of topics that I've been wanting to talk about for 15 years, and they've just never made it into the the sort of core source books. You know, awesome. One key example being the planes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where they're there, they've been part of the world since the beginning, and yet we've never really actually told you anything about them. Yeah, I remember. That, like, there was just a little bit about, like, there was, there's 13? Is there's that the 13. main thing? Yep. It's kind of like a, like you can see the Great Wheel template mm-hmm. from it, but it's its own unique sort of thing. And, and that's the thing, is unlike the Great Wheel, it's very much not tied to alignment because mm-hmm. of course Eberron sort of distances itself from clear black and white alignment mm-hmm. uh, and but that's the point is you have this this thing that is philosophically different mm-hmm. and yet we never go into enough detail to tell you how you could actually use them or make them interesting. Oh, that's super exciting. So I should actually take this opportunity to indicate that I actually have never touched anything Eberron at all. Well, it's basically magic robots and dinosaurs on trains. Sold. <laughs> yep. I remember the moment I was drawn to it from the book that came out for third edition, and I remember seeing it on the shelf, and just the cover itself, I was so pulled in. I, I was a big fan. I had to actually revisit a lot of it, because I was like, I haven't looked at this since I was like <laughs> 22. My God. Um, but this topic of wanting to touch on things that you mm-hmm, didn't get mm-hmm. to expand on in the original is exactly what we're going to have our theme, because we want to talk about world building, mm-hmm. like really mm-hmm. getting to get in those juicy cracks and butter the bread of lore. That's it's going to make it the most savory, realistic, fantasy, not realistic world. Now just, I'm hungry. Just <laughs> smear that thought gravy all over everything. Yes. I, I almost had a gravy follow-up, but I'm not going to say it. Um, <laughs> Grit gravy. Yeah. <laughs> it's right up there with Don't Archam's pocket Don't forget to squeeze butter. the tail. <laughs> um, so to start yeah. off, I want to ask, are there any other worlds that you worked on either before Eberron or after that had like a special place in your heart? Or was that kind of your... No, no. I've, I mean, I've always enjoyed world building. I will say, uh, before I 
ended up being full-time as a role-playing and board game designer. Mm. I actually worked for 12 years in the computer game industry. Hmm. And I've worked as lead designer on a number of different MMOs and actually worked on some since, uh, since then. So, you know, I've done a lot of world design in sort of different aspects professionally. Sure. Absolutely. Is there one that just really like stuck with your heart? Like uh, it made you feel see. super good? You know, I mean, I, I should have a snappy answer. I did have <laughs> one. There was a Simpsons episode mm-hmm. uh, where he's talking to a German company and, and they say, oh, we are the land of chocolate. And he imagines <laughs> their whole chocolate thing. I yep. did have one uh, world that I literally made in like sort of an afternoon for a game I was running in college. And it did, in fact, have an aisle of chocolate. Awesome. Where everything was chocolate. And one of the players, in fact, played a Chocomancer from the <laughs> island of chocolate. Can I just say, I need, a, I desperately need a greedy reboot of Candyland where yeah, just like yeah, exactly. <laughs> drowning in the chocolate swamps. Exactly. <laughs> sort of imagine a cyberpunk take on Candyland. That's Done. awesome. <laughs> For me, that would be like the elephant graveyard. Like, I'm going to go to Candy Island to mm-hmm. die <laughs> because I will not last a week. I will have type 2 diabetes within an hour what it's just florida uh, but for a fantasy world <laughs> yeah, and i just i turn into the compost that further grows the future candy plants <laughs> I'm, I'm just thinking a gritty sugar punk mm-hmm. uh, sugar punk sugar granulated Holy more than gritty, gritty. Really. <laughs> everyone a, a grainy sugar punk. <laughs> none of that powdered sugar bullshit yeah no that's amazing i love it <laughs> yeah sugar punk everyone out there listening uh keith baker's it's next project <laughs> I am on board as a consultant for that. <laughs> oh, man. And that's so good with the zeitgeist right now. Like, everybody's Absolutely. all about that shit. Like, I just love little worlds, even if you don't put a lot of time into them, where it's like, you're so, it makes so much sense off the bat that it's like putting on a pair of really comfortable worn-in jeans. You're just like, <laughs> ah, there it is. Everything fits just right. <laughs> sugar punk is that. <laughs> sugar, <laughs> sugar punk is my new uh, <laughs> basketball shorts. <laughs> like, just <laughs> the comfort level. As a kind of, like, follow-up to that question, I would say, um, what would, do you, is the most important part of building a fantasy world so for example like uh the magic and the role mm-hmm, it plays mm-hmm. or uh creatures and the threat that they pose or like the history and the culture like what what to you makes a really makes a world well the thing to me is the the sort of very first thing i always start with is the question of how is it different from our world mm. and mm-hmm. it's basically the you know that could be there's magic there's dragons there's whatever it is but start with that basic how is it not our world? Mm-hmm. And then start thinking about what are the consequences of those differences. Uh, you know, a little example that I just like to, you know, as an easy sort of thought exercise is just the concept of imagine that resurrection works as it does <laughs> in Dungeons and Dragons. Like Raise Dead is yeah. just a spell that's reliable. It costs 5,000 gold pieces worth of diamonds. Mm-hmm. And if you just stop and think there... You've got a couple different factors. What does it mean if basically when someone dies, you can just pay $5,000 and get them back? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how does that change uh, sort of thing socially? But also the fact that it's diamonds suddenly mm-hmm. means oh, yeah. who's got the diamonds? That's a whole different thing for like blood diamonds too. Yes, like exactly right. Is, you know, and one of the fun things I always like to say is that they say it's 5,000 gold pieces worth of diamonds, but I'm like, okay, the the price of diamonds should be <laughs> right? skyrocketing. I Suddenly mean, diamonds are a girl's best friend. Yeah. It, means, it makes a lot more sense. Um, <laughs> and you also get into the fact that if it's only, is, if it's only clerics mm-hmm. that can do this, then again, suddenly this is going to be a world where religion is going to have a lot more power than See, it does yeah. because it literally is 
rich people can buy their way back to life. So you got a theocracy slash plutocracy. And, that's and if you don't, you know, why don't you? You know, and so that's sort of what I'm saying is that's not even just saying magic. That's saying one spell. Right. But just stop and think about how could that affect civilization, societies? What would that do? Well, it's, it's interesting that you say this one thing. Because mm-hmm. to me, mm-hmm. I, I always find the most fascinating worlds for me are the ones where the differences aren't so great. Mm-hmm. Take, mm-hmm. take away one thing, add one thing, and often mm-hmm. you've got enough for an entire series. And then you can add just a few more things peppered throughout. And, and that's certainly the point to me is I find it much more interesting to focus on a few things in greater detail Mm -hmm. than to make sweeping uh, sort of changes, so to speak, that you never actually really explore, Mm -hmm. you know, which comes back to what we were just talking about with the Eberron book. Part of the point is there's a bunch of really interesting things that it's been 15 years and we never gotten around to (laughs) to talking about. Totally. And so I agree with you. It doesn't have to be vastly different mm. uh, to be really engaging. Uh, but part of it is, is, as I said, starting with that point, how is it different? And then thinking about the consequences. Yeah, that's, that's the word that's like driving. It's like thinking about all of mm-hmm. the world choices as consequences. Like, yeah, you've got like a dozen moons. What does that do to your tides? Like, is your mm-hmm. ocean just a big mess? Is it like... Well, not to mention the werewolves. Oh, of course. Um, yeah. the, just and, all the time, these werewolves. Oh, different were creatures coming into fruition based off of which the were swans yeah. come out in February. <laughs> the were swan is king. Just don't go near any fountains. Well, comes in, <laughs> comes in like a lion, but goes out like a lamb. Yes. <laughs> But beyond that, the other thing I'm always looking to is, you know, one thing people always say is, is when I'm making history, you know, how much is Mm -hmm. too much with, you know, whatever you're doing. And the big question to me is, how is whatever it is you're making, you know, whether it's history, whether it's a nation, whether it's whatever, a religion, Mm -hmm. how is it going to be interesting in a story? Mm-hmm. You know, whether this is fiction or a role-playing game, if it's a role-playing game, how will this ever come up in an interesting story? Why will anyone ever care about it? Because if no one cares, you know, what's the point? Yeah. An interesting extension to that thought is... At what point does the character take kind of the forefront? Mm -hmm. In a lot of books Mm -hmm. I've read that, you know, the world kind of takes over everything. It's Mm -hmm. all about the world. And sometimes you really, you know, the world is is just supposed to be a simple backdrop for Mm -hmm. a very compelling Mm -hmm. character. And finding that balance is is nigh impossible when you have a world that you're so deeply in love with and you want to share, but you don't want to just hand a pamphlet to your reader. And and that's the thing. You can see in, uh, you know, a lot of fantasy fiction or things like that points where the writer actually gets sidetracked from what is interesting the readers because, well, I really want to tell you about, you know, I've fallen in love with my world. (laughs) I really want to show off this piece. But the fact of the matter is that it it doesn't help the story. Yeah, they go on some tangent and want to flex like their geography minor that they (laughs) talk about mountains for 20 pages. And. And the point is always, well, if you can tell me how this is interesting, you know, mm-hmm. basically you want to make a list of 100 kings. Well, what I'm saying is there's no reason for me to care about that unless you yeah. say, oh, there's an undead lord who's rising up with an army of such and such. And to defeat him, we've got to figure out which of the 100 kings is he. Yeah. And OK, now you're getting somewhere. <laughs> like how but, far back is too far in the history, too? Because if you're talking about like World War from like 20,000 years ago, it's like unless it's a time traveling campaign, it's not going to be relevant ever. <laughs> this is one of the biggest things, having having done a lot of, uh, you know, world design for different companies and things like that is people really really do fantasy in particular has this 
problem with history inflation. Mm -hmm. Like I was working on a world for a computer game company in Germany. And at some point, you know, I'd done a basic sort of overview of the cultures and the things like that. And they said, oh, it doesn't feel epic enough. Can you add another 10,000 years to the history? And I'm like, you realize 10,000 years I charge literally by the year, is dude. human history. <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, even with Eberron, uh, the, the main kingdom of Corvair has technically been around for a thousand years. Mm -hmm. I'm like, a thousand years is a really long so, time. Well, and also keeping in mind that, that, you know, modern technology has allowed us to look at that time. Before right. that, we didn't know. Right. Like, it's not like anybody, it's not like anybody, you know, 300 years ago knew anything about Samaria. Like mm -hmm, that wasn't mm -hmm, something we understood. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. Even the, even the concept of like, uh, like that kind of architecture back there or just like archaeology in general. Like that's a pretty new concept in the grand scheme <laughs> and, of things. And it comes back to that. There's this this concept of, well, it's more interesting to say there's 10,000 years of history when to me it's much more interesting to say we're just going to take a century, but let's really think about how has the world changed yeah. in and the course always, of that. And you can always plant a seed, you know, mm -hmm. referring to some event, a thing that occurred so long right. ago. And then we don't know what happened after that because that's I mean, all you need. who was writing shit down? But, yeah. But other things that come up, you know, uh, in general world building and such is first off countries, you know, mm -hmm. you're making nations. Part of the question is, why does this nation exist? How did it come about? Yeah. What is it? that has made it succeed and last? Is it resources? Is it something about its culture? Mm -hmm. You know, basically, again, uh, it's sort of the same touch of, well, why is this history interesting? With right. this nation, why would it last For if sure. it was in our world? Yeah, those are really important things to like add any kind of reality to it. And I feel like there's a lot you can tell about the quality of a world mm -hmm. based on how much fun the creator had making it. <laughs> yeah. And like, cause you have a huge dossier of world building things you've worked on. Is there one for you that you got to work on that I think you just, you genuinely had the most fun the whole time you're working well, on it was just a treat. I mean the fun, you know, the funny thing about it is that is literally Eberron mm -hmm. of the thing is back in 2003, Wizards of the Coast did a contest mm -hmm. where yeah. they said, send in a one page description of a world. Yep. Uh, I sent in seven. And Eberron was number seven, and yeah. it was not a thing that I actually expected them to run with mm -hmm. because it was kind of a weird twist on traditional D&D. &D. Sure. It was just one that I really enjoyed writing the, the proposal for. Yeah, and I remember the whole, like, just thousands and thousands of mm -hmm. entrants. And mm -hmm. it, it was based on, like, you built, like, a 100-page Bible or something from eventually, that? Eventually, yeah. yeah. Eventually up to 100 pages. It was 10 to... But when they first accepted it, I was I was like, really? That one? Um, cause the one with trains and robots? Awesome. Trains and robots. Um, <laughs> and... You know, but beyond that, I was working on a project six years ago, mm -hmm. five or six years ago, because uh, at the time I couldn't write new Eberron material. Sure. And uh, I wanted to make a world that was an interesting world, but not tied to a particular system. Hmm. And uh, so I was developing a couple of interesting cultures, things like that, and I ended up dropping that when I started working on my role-playing game, Phoenix Dawn Command. Sure, yeah. Uh, and that just sort of took over uh, my time. But with that previous world that was called Codex, uh, there was still one particular city that I really liked and that I actually made a fiasco playset nice. based on it that <laughs> I still actually have and, and occasionally run with people just because it's just, again, the city in isolation. Yeah. 
is really interesting. And that's sort of part of the point of world building is it's still back to the big or little approach. Mm -hmm. Do you start with the world or do you start with a particularly interesting location in the world and build out from there definitely i love that approach too like especially because like there's there's world building for you know the video game thing mm -hmm. where you're like you're making it and then you're putting people into it and they're living in the thing you've made where and then there's like with tabletop role playing if you want to flesh things out sometimes you just drop some people in there right. and they'll do all the work for you like this town is not fleshed out right. you're gonna have an adventure right. there you want to go to the blacksmith sure there's a blacksmith and here's why they're there and, and and you know to me that sort of comes back to the point is with eberron it mm -hmm. was very important for us to start with the big picture picture because we knew from the start this setting needs to support many different styles of adventure it needs mm -hmm. to be pulp it needs to be noir it needs to be you know all these different things and that travel was going to be a very important part of it Definitely. Uh, but you take something like the old fantasy series thieves world mm -hmm. where they just basically said well the you know the story is sanctuary yeah we know that it's in an empire we know that there is a church mm -hmm. you know but how big is the empire? What are the different provinces called? We don't really care because the city is yes. more than enough to contain all the stories we want to tell. Right. And something I see a lot of, especially when you're talking about fantasy, is how the lens through which you view that world mm -hmm. can really dictate what of that world you're going to see. So, for example, I mean, Tolkien, it's it's basically just a walking tour of Mordor. Mm -hmm. Mord <laughs> of Mordor. Tour of I, okay, I want to I <laughs> read that story. <laughs> it's, just, it's just walking tour of Middle Earth. Could you imagine a tour bus? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> One does not simply take a bus into Mordor. <laughs> On your left, you see another volcano. <laughs> There's a lot of those. <laughs> but no, it's it's very, it's, it's interesting because you know, you've got like a walking tour where each it's like a, it's like stops on mm -hmm, the way mm -hmm. to some major location right. but then like if you change that slightly like let's, let's say you make it trains mm -hmm. suddenly you're seeing the world through the lens of cities major right. hubs you know mm -hmm. and then and then rural environments now become an exotic or unusual thing because that's not something you deal with in that story and it's just it's interesting to see how travel dictates your view of the world and you touched on a, an important point earlier too which it's also a very big question as to are you designing uh, for publication, mm -hmm. or are you designing for your campaign? Yeah. And if you're designing for your campaign, it is incredibly valuable to get the players involved in the creation. It's like mm -hmm. narrative playtesting. And this is the point of the whole thing that makes role-playing games different from fiction or other forms of entertainment is that it is collaborative mm -hmm. and this isn't just me handing you a novel of my ideas of the world it is a chance to make a world that you care about right and the more that i give you opportunities to add details or to add uh, elements to it the more you're going to care about it definitely and so you know there's always just you know, always looking for things of, oh, okay, you want to play an elf and we haven't really talked about elves. Well, let's talk about elves. Yeah, let you know, them what set you the pace for that. There's sort of, you have to be cautious on that, especially with a group of people, uh, you know, to make sure that everyone's interested mm -hmm. in doing that. You don't want to force someone into something and that things feel uh, consistent. But yeah. even just as you were saying before, you want a blacksmith? Okay, there's a blacksmith. Right, and it's hard to make things like automatically canon. It's like, okay, right. well, there's a kind of blood deity that you can worship, and you like, sure. okay, how do you cast your spell? Okay, now this is canon, and if someone else wants right. to do this, they have to talk to the first creator. For example, there, you know, just when I'm running even sort of games within Eberron, the last campaign I ran, uh, 
I set on the sort of frontier. Mm-hmm. And again, it was one of these areas we hadn't really explored. And yeah. I said, well, this is going to be a sort of fantasy Western. Nice. And so yeah. I started off, you know, <laughs> sort of listing off as you're making your characters. Someone could be the sheriff. Someone could be the preacher. Someone could, you know, be the bartender. Uh, so first the players are picking those roles. You know, mm-hmm. do they want to do them? If they don't, I'll fill them in. But then in our session zero, part of it was about talking about the town. Yeah, having a team building exercise, basically. There's one tavern here. Everyone tell me something about it. You know, tell me one person you like in the town. And the point is, that's not a world. But the whole idea of this campaign, as I said from the start, this is going to be fantasy Deadwood. That basically this town... This is very on topic for how we usually discuss things. And and my point is, for this campaign, this town is basically going to be your world. Right. And then as the campaign, you know, every episode, we're adding more details. We're having the mysterious stranger, you know, show up. We're talking more about the miners that we haven't really done totally and again <laughs> have we mentioned deadwood in every episode now no, you are literally describing the game i'm running right now <laughs> yeah. Excellent. there's Excellent. a lot of western crosstalk which yeah, uh, yeah it's just on brand and like the thing when you're like in a world especially if it's like a dungeon master you're playing with that you know has like a lot of mm-hmm. details zach mentioned like the scope at which mm-hmm. you view things and you're like playing as a character in this world and you're like okay i'm having some influence on this window and then you like leave the session and sometimes i think about like what are all the things that they know about that mm-hmm. didn't even mm-hmm. like the just the untold the off map the, the fog mm-hmm. of war of their imagination that you didn't get to explore and there's some dungeon masters and storytellers who just you can tell through their novel writing or their game design are you know just next level mm-hmm. Are there any that you are aware of that you could be like, if I could sit down, even if it's not a DMD thing, like in a fantasy world, a novel series or something with the person who wrote it as the DM, like what's your <laughs> choice to be like, I want to sit at this table with this guy telling a story in this world? That's a really good question. You know, I just think of, again, some of my favorite, uh, you know, game masters that I've played with, you know, people or just people of creative worlds. Like I still love uh, Jonathan Tweet. Yeah. Among other things, he created the role-playing game Over the Edge. Okay. And uh, that's indie game from the 90s that sort of, if you mash up Illuminati, Twilight Zone, uh, you know, the X-Files. Nice. Uh, set in an island called Alamara. And part of the thing about it is that, first, it's this great, bizarre uh, sort of place. It's in our world, so you can draw on what you know, but then adding in almost every crazy conspiracy theory you can think hmm. of. <laughs> so again, it has the advantage of using player familiarity. You know, I can think of something that right. should be there, but then saying, but you never know what's on yeah, top of like that. like an ambiguous monster of the week kind of thing. But mm. on top of that, and this was again back in the 90s, so oh, you sure. know, this was sort of way know, fucked back the then. edge of the, <laughs> the indie stuff. <laughs> Um, Ancient history. All of the games yeah. were carved into stone tablets. Right. But but part of it is also for a game based on conspiracies. Mm-hmm. One of the things he did was had a lot of places where he said, well, here's this conspiracy and they could be doing X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. And these people could be aliens or they could be ancient gods, you know. And right. a lot of these points that, again, focused on the idea that the established canon, as it were, was there for inspiration, 
not something that should limit you. And mm-hmm. part of what it meant is if I played in your Over the Edge campaign, mm. even though I've written for it, even though I've run it for years, I don't know all the secrets because nice. I don't know the choices you've made. Yeah, the very like late night history channel too with like, is it gods or aliens? Like, yep. <laughs> and, and that's something that definitely influenced me in Eberron of that's why, you know, from the start, we said we've got this big mystery of the morning mm-hmm. and we're never going to say what, what caused it yeah. because i want you to come up with those answers i love that i'd say one of the one of the interesting things about that to me is the idea of, a, of the fact that reality is in flux or at least our mm-hmm. perception mm-hmm. of it is in flux um something that i try to impress upon a lot of my friends when they're creating worlds is keep in mind that an average person doesn't know everything about every piece of history that's ever occurred it, this is this is something that actually has come up a couple of times of people sort of asking questions of, oh, why would X, you know, X or Y be like this in Eberron? Why wouldn't people, you know, do this or that? And I'm like, well, remember that the people in this world do not have this one book that is the absolute (laughs) authority on everything in the world. Yeah. And they could just be wrong. Right. They could just be wrong. Even comparing real world histories, you get inconsistencies all All the the time. time. Right. And, you know, not only could they be wrong, that in all likelihood on any given concept, there's four different theories floating around about, yeah. you know, what it is. <clears throat> or there's so, just like yeah. a decade somewhere that is just gone. Like mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. completely off any kind of record. And then the, and the, like, like the idea of folktales and things like that, and like interceding mm-hmm. with actual history and then the confusion between the two. Like that kind of stuff is so pre- prevalent in our world. Yeah, it yeah. occurs so rarely in fantasy well, worlds. And I will say that one of the things that I found very interesting when we were designing Eberron was working on religion. Uh, because in Dungeons and Dragons, traditionally, mm-hmm. you always had, you know, straight from deities and demigods, this concept of a very sort of Norse Greek concept of gods, where yeah. gods are things that will come down and can meddle in the affairs of mortals. It's, it's hard to doubt them. And you right. can go and punch one in the nose. And it's exactly that of <laughs> when you accept that is this is how the universe or the world works. You have no room for faith. It's not a question of whether you believe in a god. It's more like professional sports, where it's just which team am I going to back? And that is, yeah, (laughs) and and that that's just a very different experience Mm -hmm. from how we experience things. And so, one of the things we said with Eberron is the gods do not intervene physically in the world. That basically we have no absolute proof that they exist. One of my favorite notes on that is actually, did you ever play the game Exalted? Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing I loved about that is the idea that the gods are wrapped up in this game, this, mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. deeply, horribly addicting godly game. And they don't they don't refuse to intercede on any kind of moral or righteous basis. They just mm-hmm. don't do it because they don't care because they're so busy playing this game. And I just think to myself, like, how fucking amazing must that game be? <laughs> right. And it's to like, get to the point where the gods are so, in, in fantasy worlds, where it's like, there's, there's proof. It's just like right here. Like, right. literally, yeah. I'm doing a spell. And, like, it's happening. And so, you know, looking to Eberron, we started from that point of you are never going to meet a god. I cannot absolutely prove to you that a god exists. Yes, I'm a cleric and I can cast spells, but that guy's a wizard and he can cast spells, yeah, and that guy's a scion and he can cast spells. Mm. Um, but also part of what that means is with your religions, you have to say why 
would someone believe this? Why sure. is this compelling? Why would this thrive and succeed? You know, so with each religion, you have to say, what is it about this that creates a community that brings people together? Why would this belief stick around? Yeah. Well, and then you also look at other time periods where you have like, so for example, the Assyrians, mm -hmm. they believed that uh, conquest was the, was like their, their source of enlightenment. And that as long as they continued to conquer, the world would continue to function. But if at any point the Assyrian Empire fell, the world would literally end. And I think to myself, why in the fuck would you follow that religion? Why would mm -hmm. you believe mm -hmm. this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And in like some fantasy settings where the gods are so relevant, they become like part of the ecosystem. It's literally right. just like these huge things that are kind of at a mm -hmm. great distance. And then when and they get involved, it's like, why would they give you their power? Because everything's sort of a, a bartering system. There's, mm -hmm. a, mm -hmm. there's a god economy. Like, yes, I will give you this spell, <laughs> but you owe me something for me. And yeah. that's exactly the point to me is... That's interesting mm -hmm. that it's not there is no right way to approach these, but it's back to if dealing with gods, if the gods are something we know exists, but it's like a power source that you are engaging with in this way. How's that affect the world? Right. You know that it's all there's no one right answer. You know, again, I have nothing wrong with gods coming down and messing around in mortal affairs. You know, I oh, love yeah. me there's some. A time and a place. <laughs> yeah, I love, I love, you know, uh, the Odyssey Deus uh, or everything. the Iliad. Uh, but that's a particular story, and it's just that question of, um, it's just that question of what story you want to tell yeah. whereas in Eberron by having the fact that we don't know the gods exist that leaves a lot more room for heresies for schisms right. for crusades for churches doing bad things for you know misguided reasons too much god stuff can be like beating an undead horse kind of thing yeah. you know <laughs> <laughs> well I mean we, we all draw from various resources like you mentioned the Iliad you mentioned mm -hmm. gods we mentioned Tolkien you know and really all fantasy worlds to one degree or another are built on the shoulders of of giants mm -hmm. you know we, we all draw from somebody like literally like i just sit on top of a stone giant with, a, <laughs> with an ipad and just build stuff so i guess i guess the big question is how how can you make sure that a world you're creating that the, the the materials that you're using differentiate themselves from the other creators that you are borrowing from that, that it stands alone well, I mean, one of the things is I think to a certain degree you can't. Sure. You know, that part of that point is don't obsess too much about your thing having to be entirely unique. Uh, with Wizards of the Coast in that contest we mentioned, they got 12,000 entries. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if talking to the, the people who were judging it, they're like, yeah, we had like, you know, 300 water worlds and right. 200 <laughs> whatevers. And I remember afterwards, uh, someone was posting about it on, you know, one of the message boards and was basically saying, well, I shouldn't share this because, you know, this is the most brilliant fantasy world ever created. But here's what I submitted. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I have one of those, <laughs> you know. And I mean, so first off, there's that point of don't obsess about uh why it is you know how it is completely different from everything else but there's there's two things i would say to this the first is why are you not just using our world mm -hmm. you know that basically you can always we've got a lot of interesting history and when i say use our world Nothing wrong with saying, well, I'm going to take the Roman Empire, but I'm going to add, you know, the D&D yeah. &D magic system or I'm going to do whatever. And it comes back to what I said about Over the Edge earlier. If you right. use our world, you already have all this established history, all this material that players can use. So first thing is, why are you creating a world instead of using the world that's already there? Then 
The second question is if you're saying, well, I've got a reason. It's because I want to do this thing. It's because I have this concept that doesn't work in our world. Then the next question is, why is this interesting? Mm -hmm. What is it that's going to make me want to experience this world? And to me, as I said, it's not so much the issue of is it completely unique and completely different from everything that's come before. It's the question of why do I want to explore it? Can you tell me in two sentences a description of this world that will make me say I want to know more? I find that fascinating because I feel like science fiction and fantasy almost stand alone in the, in terms of genres because they're so heavily gimmick driven. It's premise, you know, everything comes down to premise. Like I can read just like a one one sentence synopsis of a world and you'll either be hooked or completely bored. Meanwhile, you talk about modern like realistic fiction, I don't need a premise there. Mm-hmm. It's sold on the quality mm-hmm. of the writer mm-hmm. first and then secondarily you know, characters, etc. Yeah, or it could be like you're sold on the trials and tribulations the characters will face. And then if it happens to be an interesting world, it's just like an added bonus. It's right. Like, oh, cool. Well, and again, it depends where you're going. With mm-hmm. Eberron, as I said, we knew from the start this is a world that wants to support essentially multiple genres, you know, many different types of stories. On the other hand, with Phoenix Dawn Command, we actually started with a mechanic. And that was mm-hmm. just this idea that this will be a game in which death is how your character grows stronger. Uh, that What's this? This is this is a role playing <laughs> game that awesome. I released. It's a role playing game it's I released a couple of years pitch. ago. And uh, exactly. And the point is, we were just saying, well, let's imagine a fantasy game where death is how your character levels up, uh, and that basically it's wanting to have moments like Gandalf on the bridge in Moria mm-hmm. and saying, well, in D&D, throwing you against a Balrog and saying it will just kill all of you unless one of you sacrifices yourselves is just a jerk move. But that's such a great moment. Yeah. And so Phoenix, we said, okay, well, what if when you die, you eventually come back, not right away, not where you died. You know, basically it's not like this is trivial and has no impact on the adventure, but you will come back and you will come back stronger. Um, the catch is you can only come back seven times. So again, Mm. it is not that death has no meaning. And it also adds the twist that the stronger you get, suddenly the more careful you have to be, the closer you're getting to the end. Why only seven times? Uh, It's cats. Well, it started oh, with nine. nine. We did start with nine, and everyone <laughs> said, like, cats. And we're like, forget it, seven. There you go. I um, accidentally you did know, it. <laughs> and, and part of the point is it needs to be a small enough thing that it mm. is both conceivable that you could reach it within the course of a campaign sure. and that you'll feel that pressure. And if so, I say you've got 20 lives, eh, you're probably right. lucky to get to 11. Sounds like Mario at that point. Um, <laughs> and That's okay. I got another guy. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, but the point is, so we had this idea, we want this thing where death is death and sacrifice are integral parts of the the game that Mm -hmm. drive your experience. What we knew that meant is we need a world in which you regularly are going to have reasons to lay down your life when you're, you know, you're facing something that feels, you know, again, to get that moment of Gandalf on the bridge, it's got to feel like it's worth it. Yeah. For him to make that sacrifice. Yeah, it's just, uh, I love the idea of just, I can't wait to die. <laughs> like, it's right. going to be awesome. Uh, and and I will say, this is the thing about Phoenix, is Phoenix essentially is this action horror game uh, where it very much is, the premise is this is a world that is facing a host of supernatural threats. Almost any sort of nightmare you can think of, it's out there somewhere. 
We don't know why these are happening. We don't know how they relate to each other. We only know that it's getting worse. Nice. So a little bit of Pacific Rim meets World War Z in a fantasy world. Yeah. And the point of it is normal people can't fight these things. You can, but... You know, that's because you're a phoenix. And the whole point is with oh, every... The phoenix. I feel like an yeah, idiot. That's why you're right in my fucking face. Uh, and, and the point is every session, we need to have a situation where we can say, again, you will feel mm-hmm. it is potentially worth it for me to lay my life down here. Yeah, so, and the you closer know, you get to that seven, it's just got like tension is oh, going to yeah. get higher and higher. Yeah. And, and it's just that point of saying, we're going to have a town. There's a zombie outbreak. If you can contain it in two hours, it does not matter how many of you die accomplishing that. Right. But if you don't, if you do, if we do have a TPK, or if it just takes too long, it's going to spread too far to be contained. Nice. And I like the, like, I like the idea that like how many times you've died is like a weird flex. It's like on your mm-hmm. resume. Like, by the way, I've kicked it five times. Like, I'm a badass. <laughs> well, and the, other, and the other twist on it is that it is also the case that how you die essentially determines the abilities you gain. Oh, neat. So it's essentially, uh, you know, it's sort of your class choice, even though it's not quite a class-driven system because we're basically saying what are the lessons you learned that's great so if a troll rips your head off we're basically saying well do you feel if i just been a little tougher you know that was just i just wasn't tough enough i could have taken him otherwise yeah was it well you were holding the bridge to save others and that's why you were there and died or were you just like i just failed how do you work around dying trivially like you died for no real good reason (laughs) like you choked on a chicken (laughs) wing or some shit (laughs) well let's let's have it i like that (laughs) well from the the that aspect of what kind of death is it uh you know that would be the bitter death which is essentially failure but part of the point of it is that thing of death is a resource within the game of Mm -hmm. if you're going to have moments like the balrog on the bridge that is a situation where if we don't have someone who can take the bridge uh we've got a problem and so you don't want to even though dying powers you up you don't want to throw that away because you want to save it for that moment when you throw yourself down the dragon's throat and cut it apart i love the idea of somebody like literally choking to death on some chicken they Mm -hmm. respawn they Mm -hmm. immediately fall down the stairs as they're lying there Mm -hmm. suddenly waking back up a moose head falls on top of them they stand up and they're like Oh, I got to be careful. Yeah. <laughs> and and the critical thing, well, you know, Russian doll, is all I'd say. Yeah, uh, yeah. The the critical thing I would say is that within Phoenix, part of the point is again, you don't come back right away. You don't come back where you died. Mm. So imagine that we're talking about something with sort of the mood of aliens. Mm. Uh, and the point is, we're here at this table for four hours. If you die, you're not coming back tonight. Oh, no. You know, and so what I'm saying is, you don't want to just choke on a peach pit because then I'm <laughs> yeah. sitting around. You know, I mean, Get you know, a backup you want character scenario and, kind of thing. And or? further, well, you know, basically, if you die physically but you still have mystical energy, you sort of have two resources. Mm-hmm. You can possess one of the other players and sort of ride along with them. Nice. So you're not out. But you are. We have lost access to most of your abilities. You like right. make them do embarrassing stuff. Uh, or make them. No, you can, just, <laughs> you can just help them out. The hand doesn't stop um, doing this. But uh, I did a jack off gesture for the podcast. But it's still. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that you added that for the, the viewers at home. Uh, but it is back to that point of so there have to be consequences because if there's no consequences, then it doesn't feel dramatic. Right. But going all the way back, you know, to the main point is as it stands in a typical uh, adventure of phoenix usually about half the party will probably die mm-hmm. but nine times out of ten when you die in phoenix it's doing something amazing like right. it feels cool but it came back to with the world 
this did not need to be a hugely complicated world. It didn't need to have a lot of, you know, 20 different nations or 20, but what we knew is it needed to present a lot of situations mm-hmm. where you were facing impossible odds and, you know, may need to make a terrible <laughs> yeah, sacrifice. Set you up to die. And yeah. the reason yeah. you get seven lives is because of the divine origin of seven in that it, there are seven chaos well, emeralds in Sonic the Hedgehog. Well, and right. frankly, <laughs> you know, coming back to that why seven, there is an explanation within the lore of the game. Pretty awesome. sure Law just covered it. It's actually what it is. Well, I mean, yeah, but I wasn't. That's what I'm saying is the players don't know starting off. <laughs> oh, right. you lead up to it. God, did I spoil um, it? spoiled all of it. <laughs> but... But that is the point, is is that there is an answer in the game, but at the same time, the players don't know it's starting. Yeah, and I some... can suck on these limes as much as I want. I'm not getting any more gin out of them. No, that's no. a fact. <laughs> or are we taking a quick pause to uh, Did you have a history check? Uh, I can. I was I was potentially going to leave it out of this one, but I do have one for a backup. Oh, please, please sure. do. So once in a once every episode, I sometimes do a history check, uh, which is where we just talk about something fun that happened in D&D. Mm-hmm. And I was going to approach it as uh, this one, Sometimes you can kind of look at D&D through the eyes of a spectator, like someone who's clearly never played or doesn't get it at all, mm-hmm. especially in the 1980s. <laughs> um, it's it's a, The beginning of this is a little sad because there were two brothers in Colorado who were both dead. Kill, uh, there was a mysterious death. Who was, were both dead. Who were both <laughs> killed to death. Um, uh, D&D, dead and deader. Right, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, and it was kind of a mystery, like, did they take their own lives? Was it a, was it a conspiracy thing? And this was in 1984. And this is from the Omaha World Heralds. Uh, the police chief had a reason to believe that D&D was involved. And then the interview through the newspaper, he talked about what D&D is. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, D&D appeals to very intelligent people who use their imagination to manipulate characters and work through a, a series of mages to achieve treasures and avoid falling into the dungeon. You know, there's some de- some connections there. Let me, let me keep going. Uh, okay, okay. Series of mages, uh, mazes to achieve treasures and avoid oh, falling in the dungeons. Mazes? Oh, you mazes. said mages the first time. Did I say mages? mages. Oh, like, totally no. like we're working through a this series is, of mages. Oh. This is just a lesson in handwriting. All I right, almost printed right, this right. out. Uh, and to mazes continue. Mazes makes more sense. Yeah, a series of mazes to achieve treasures and avoid falling into the dungeon. Uh, <laughs> my understanding is that once you reach a certain point, uh, you have to become the master. And your only way out <laughs> is by death. Uh, and in that way, nobody can beat you. So that was just a fun uh, from the police chief uh, of Omaha in 1984. Their take on D anD D. That's like the PowerPoint presentation explaining Naruto running to the yeah. fucking general. <laughs> the Area I'm... 51 safety meeting. But see, I'm sad about that. It's not working through a series of mages because I'm like, okay, right? now you're talking. Now we're now getting we somewhere. Have a story. I am a bacteria eating my way through the Arcadium, just slowly <laughs> getting more powerful and contagious. It's pandemic meets Harry Potter. I'm just getting that classic like <laughs> boss room thing where it's like boss fight. Okay, we fight the mage and now there's a bigger mage but, like, with an even bigger set of pauldrons. Seriously, they're like fuck giant snakes and basilisks terrorizing the kids of Hogwarts. I want a, like a disease. Like <laughs> an incredibly contagious magical herpes that just wipes out <laughs> half of Slytherin. Harry Potter and the Black Plague. <laughs> Uh, Slytherin transmitted diseases. Harry Potter and the abyssal gonorrhea. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's this is this is all STD driven. Hello, my tenderlings. Law here to say thank you for listening to D20 Questions. Me and Zach have a lot of fun doing this project, and your support makes that possible. If you like it, please share it with your friends and enemies because we do not advertise. 
And don't forget to check out slapdashstudios.com to get news about all of our content, links to our social media, and of course our shiny new Patreon page, loaded with fun rewards and access to D21 side, where we go off script and cut loose with our guest and just have a really good time. If you think you'd be a good guest for D20 questions, please reach out to us at admin at slapdashstudios.com. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, a big thank you to this week's special guest, Keith Baker. What an absolute delight it was to interview you, and one of my favorite D21 sides by far. So please check it out. And without further ado, let's get back to the show. So we talked, we touched very deliciously and quickly on something called sugar punk, which is a kind of a good <laughs> lead into punk. one of my questions. Uh, so there's a lot of gimmicks in game design and world design, but like, what are some of those tasty little branding things that just always get your attention or things you really love to like dive into? Like the word punk sets a mm-hmm. tone immediately mm. for what the whole thing is. Are there any ones that just like... They make sense to you, like, or you haven't done it enough, and you want to try more of it. Uh, I don't know. Give me a couple more examples that jump out to you. To well, you know, things like concept. This game involves a lot of mutation. That sets a tone well, of like, oh, is it post-apocalyptic? Or this game has dinosaurs in it. Does that mean, I mean it's historical or scientific? Yeah. Well, I will certainly say that uh, collaborative is always a word that appeals mm. to me because it comes back to the fact that this is why I enjoy role-playing games. You know, basically, if I don't want a collaborative story, I'll read a book or I'll play a computer game, you know, the single player. True, true. What I love in a role-playing game, I'm in a campaign right now, and we've just sort of hit that spot where we're three or four sessions in, where I'm really getting to know the other characters, Mm -hmm. we're really sort of exploring this world, uh, and it feels like, ooh, I'm watching a TV show, and, you know, oh, I can't wait to see what's going to happen next episode. Like, um, and... Part of that is because it's not just the Game Master's story. It's my story. You know, it's everyone else's. I want to see, I, you know, may just exchange emails with one of the other players in character because those characters have, you know, sort of their own stories going on. Do you give a lot of creative control from the DM? Can they be like, you get to decide how your culture lived and stuff like that? And that's the point is that, you know, sort of understood. Again, I just can't say, oh, and and I happen to be growing diamonds in the back of my, you know, garden or right. something like that. And it'd be like, yeah, you're not. As an um, expansion on collaborative, mm-hmm. has there ever been a novel effectively written and sold well that was a transcription of an RPG? I don't know. There's a lot of novels. There's there's a whole genre of, you know, people who, you know, playing role-playing games who are pulled into the world or sure, things yeah. like that. But I haven't read a lot of them. So basically, I don't know. There may be or well, not. People just get narnia real hard. I <laughs> mean, did somebody run just such an amazing campaign? They transcribed it and then they're like, I'm going to write this as a fantasy I'm, novel. I'm certain that it's been done, but whether or not it actually sold well <laughs> is probably an issue. There I mean, have been like fantasy series where it's like handed off. Where yeah. It's literally like, I finished book one. You take book two. Sure. This is now canon. And and I have certainly heard of a couple fantasy series supposedly being based on someone's right. campaign, right. but not a literal transcription of uh, of it. Um, and so so as I said, you know, collaborative is certainly something that catches my attention. I will say I'm a person who is interested in unusual resolution mechanics. I thought dread was uh, a lot of fun to explore. Sure. 
you know, Phoenix is a game that uses cards instead of oh, dice. Oh, definitely. And these are great, like, mm-hmm. themes of the game, like, aspects of how they're played. But, like, are there, like, things you words. can describe in world stuff? Like, the the, the actual setting it mm, takes. Like, okay, okay. All right, Exactly. All right, like, right. like, collaborative is a style of game, but, like, Cyberpunk 2020 well, you know, is a, yeah. I mean, just hitting things. First off, I, I am, you know, I do love Cyberpunk, so, you know, I'm always curious to see <laughs> right. where that goes. Uh, one of the things people have often called out is in Eberron, you have these dragon-marked houses, yes. which certainly fill in some ways in a fantasy setting the role of uh, mega corporations in a yeah, cyberpunk setting. Yeah. Right. Um, and that was part of the thing to me that was interesting of saying, well, let's take this sort of trope we're familiar mm-hmm. with of basically economic power of essentially guilds or corporations that may wield more power than states. Yeah, corporate you know, and wars. What is that so like? Cool. Is there is there a subgenre or a particular kind of medium that you can't stop consuming? Cuz there's that's the thing. It's like we we tend to think of like authors and mm-hmm. people who have who have a, a bit of authority behind their name as as these kind of people who are above consuming media on their mm-hmm. own like on their own level but then you see people like mark ruffalo like completely <laughs> getting overly excited about seeing you know x you know celebrity or something like that right is there is there like a, a genre a person an art an artist that you're just like just giddy about i mean i'm sure there is and i'm sure that i'm going to think of it in a few moments uh <laughs> but you know part of it to me is just i love interesting worlds you know say mm. i just started um playing recently pillars of eternity mm-hmm. uh the been saying around the computer game and part of what i like is they basically just double down and say in our world souls are a form of energy that we are harnessing for magical effects mm-hmm. right. and then they just go a lot of places with how have different cultures used this what is the impact of this what could you do if you had soul and while it's not that it is completely engaging or original on its own I still enjoy whenever they come up with something new and I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, that is something else you could do uh, with, right. you know, with that. But part of it, again, to me is is when you describe it like that. What is the thing that I'm like, oh, I can't wait for more? Yeah, what's the uh, pitch? The, the biggest thing to that, as I said, is the games I'm playing in myself. Mm-hmm. And it, that is literally how I feel about this campaign I'm playing is I'm like, oh, when do we get to play again? Uh, <laughs> right. Because, I know that again... So often with a television show or a movie, I have those moments where I'm like, oh, why would the characters do that? Why did they go through the door? Why did they, you know, do X or Y? And or I'm watching the murder mystery and I'm like, oh, come on. It clearly should have been blank and blank. (laughs) Right. Having your own voice be part of the story is kind of important for some things like that to be. And. And again, you know, the game I'm playing in now, it's it's not like it's fiasco or something. You know, it is a normal uh, sort of die-driven system and such. But it's still that point of it's it's our story. Yeah. So it's just a good campaign. Yeah. <laughs> so so on the note of um, like other people creating worlds or like building on a world that maybe even might have been cliche, but then they have those moments, those mm-hmm, things, mm-hmm. those pieces that just thrill you to no end. What are some examples of world building that have given you chills? Where you hear it and you're like, oh, oh shit. Certainly. So there's a couple different things. First, I just want to step back for a moment to mm-hmm. the previous question and say oh, yeah. I'm a big fan of magical realism. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, again, it ties all the way back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of let's take our world but change something. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things I really like is the author Tim Powers. 
some of his better known books. My favorites, you know, the one I'd recommend off, uh, straight off the top would be Last Call. Okay. And that is a book that essentially explores the Fisher King, Las Vegas, and then the idea of tarot as having power. Um, old, and yeah. then another one he did I liked a lot was called Declare. And Declare yeah. is very much uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, sort mm-hmm. of Cold War spy novel. If you basically took uh, Jin and that is Genies uh, and sort of the Arabian Nights and sort of worked that into that actually exists and works. Sick. Um, and so he basically tends to take like a interesting point of history and a interesting mystical thing. So like one of his points in Last Call is all based around the idea that if you say tarot is real, that this is about interacting with, you know, powerful spiritual mm-hmm. archetypes and then say, but in fact, every time you play a game of poker, you're also interacting with these things. And that nice. Las Vegas is essentially a giant oh, a spiritual magic oh, conduit. I got some chills there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's, okay. it's the merging of the, right. of, of different tropes. You know, you got right. like Old West, but with dragons. Like you, and, just, you drop one in the other and something completely new happens. And, and so just giving, you know, again, his five second pitch, it's basically saying that the gangsters who started up Los Angeles were actually essentially part of an ancient mystical tradition trying to seize the power yeah. of the Fisher King. Pretty and, fucking slick. There and, it is. There's the chills. And so the point is, because it's grounded in our world, there's not too much to take in. It's not Game of Thrones, and I'm having to learn about you know all sorts of different countries and history and this and that and the other thing. Yet at the same time, I'm looking at this particular aspect in a way I didn't before. Like I never stopped and thought about Las Vegas in that way. I have gotten the the, the inkling that there's this kind of rise right now mm-hmm. of our world. Plus, mm-hmm. take mm-hmm. okay, literal mm-hmm. New York City. Add in some magical properties. Give it, give it a nice kick-ass gimmick. Like tarot is mm-hmm. real, but so is playing and poker. Even not in like the gaming world, but even like entertainment with just like yeah. the monster of the week shows, where it's like you know the the Stranger Things or the Supernatural, where like Definitely. yeah, these are real towns, but we're making right. people have like giant neck-sucking leeches shoot out of their belly buttons. And <laughs> normal people well, have to deal with that. And Stranger Things, of course, is an, an interesting point on that. Of it's not just our world; right. it's the the 80s mm-hmm. yeah and you know i'm just separation. saying i'm just saying that the abstract you know, ethereal realm of the 80s <laughs> in a sense at this point the 80s are as abstract and ethereal as you know rome yeah, or you absolutely. know something like that it is a distinct flavored period yeah it's a huge like it's a notable separation from right. the current and um so certainly that kind of thing definitely interests me and i like that sort of supernatural again there's an aspect of magic that is real and i was thinking this was a campaign of friend of mine ran a year ago was that that pretty much concept of it was just saying this is a sort of tim powersy world where magic is out there but it doesn't have a huge physical impact you know you could easily not realize yeah. it's there uh and then the game was that we were camp counselors mm-hmm. at yeah. essentially a camp that unbeknownst to us is for dealing with kids who have magical talents, you know, sort of like a little bit Harry Potter, except part of the point is that our characters didn't know. Your characters didn't even know. It's not just a surprise to the players, but wow. And over the course of the, the campaign. So we come in without magic, right? But this was also a campaign where he was working in terror archetypes. And the idea was that you could, the path to magic was embracing one of the core suits Mm. you know are you following swords are you following coins and that you could potentially you know take on one of the the arcana um 
but it was this this part of what was fascinating about it to me was I'm discovering the world with my character. Like I understood going in, oh, there's going to be magic, mm. but I'm still sort of I don't know what my character is going to have to do to get it. And that the setting is this very isolated, but I can imagine. I, I can imagine summer camp. I can imagine being a camp right, counselor. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, that yeah, part very tangible is very grounded. My character feels real to me. And so then when suddenly I'm like, okay, but what would I do if suddenly I had, you know, someone offers me a magic sword and that's going to bond to me and change my life? Nice. Right. Um, so that's actually kind of uh, an interesting point, this, the, the idea of consequences in magic. In mm-hmm. magic, a lot of the... A lot of the uh, turn off for some people is that well magic kind of just is is this catch-all for everything you can just use it as a, as a write-off and everything everything about magic is awesome and there's very rarely real consequences yeah especially in high fantasy mm-hmm. mind you in low fantasy you get a lot of nice like like edgy questions about like okay what does magic mean to you right so what i guess my question is how can you take the idea of magic and mm-hmm. an abstract energy that you can use to literally harness the energies of creation mm-hmm. and make it meaningfully dangerous yeah well you know there's the i've always loved the idea that you know it it has a physical cost to be Mm -hmm, able to mm -hmm. use magic things like that where like every single spell you cast takes like a year of your life the more powerful the spell the more you sacrifice because there's only so much you can pass through your body before it physically can't handle anymore idea idea i had uh similar to that was actually that uh, you had to sacrifice the life of someone you Mm -hmm. cared about and more importantly it had to be someone you cared about Mm-hmm. Which means yep. that you have these these psych- psychically depressed wizards running mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. with like close friends, and the friends are sitting there thinking like, "This is going to happen. Today's the day. He's going to kill me." And I right. Know and it. in this world, like the wizards are the most powerful, but the next most powerful are like the, the therapists. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> they, they, they're the ones that balance the scales. I actually did something like that. I was was doing. I do a lot of one shots, and I was working on a one shot uh, for a fantasy game, and you know, it was basically D anD D, but I wanted to make it more interesting. And one of the principles I had was that clerical magic uh, the cleric to cast a spell they have to make a vow and it can either be the cleric can make a vow or they can demand the recipient of you know basically they say you want me to heal you right you've got to you know do X yeah the barter the um, magical barter and that wizards had to make a sacrifice but they could pick someone else to do it that is to say, as as a cleric, I have to say, would you do this? Or if you wouldn't, I'm going to do it for you. As a cleric, I can say, I mean, as a wizard, I can say, well, somebody's got to take five points of fire damage when I cast this fireball. Right. I think it's going to be you, Bob. Does it have to be? It has to be someone, an, an ally. willing. It has to, well, they know they don't have to be willing. Ooh. That was the point of saying kind of that wizards shot. are this weird, but it has to be someone you know. Ah. I can't do it to my enemy. And that plays beautifully on like old world ideas of like black magic right. and wizards like spoiling someone milk and yeah, like, or just right. blood magic. Someone oh, has to pay a price. Mm. And it could be the wizard could choose to pay it themselves, but mm-hmm. they can also say it's not really a wizard thing a... to do though, is to no. take the take oh, totally. the bite for that one. And that and that actually like I love that because uh so for example, weirdest thing, uh crossbows for the longest time weren't used. Mm-hmm. Not for any practical reason, but because people genuinely believed that archery should be difficult and that because art crossbows were too easy to use there were certain people who were like i'm sorry that's the devil's work yeah, yeah. yeah. or even like the era of like john d like the the advisor to king 
kings and queens. It's like he was literally sent to jail for calculating, yeah. like the crime <laughs> yeah. of having done complex maths. But, and so, if so, if magic, if you can, if you can command the same energies as, say, a cleric, but mm-hmm. without any, without any true sacrifice, then mm-hmm. isn't that just the work of a devil? Well, and mm-hmm. another kind of sacrifice that's not like this physical, tangible trading system is literally just a social sacrifice, mm-hmm. where like there is like ninety nine percent of the populace hates you because you can use well, magic and will exile you. Mm-hmm. Well, and flipping it around, you know, uh, going back to Phoenix, that was part of the principle of Phoenix, is in Phoenix you have as a character two resources, your mm-hmm. physical health and your sparks, which are your magical energy. Okay. Uh, you lose physical health by being physically injured, and mm-hmm. if you run out of it, you die. Um, sparks, you burn either to fuel supernatural power or to basically you can essentially add them to your role so right. to speak you know i can buy success mm. but the issue is when you run out of sparks you die and did you get any money mm. from the energy drink company sparks no for this i did not <laughs> Damn. Uh, so but close. they should use the slogan if you run out of sparks you die yes now <laughs> that is a bold marketing theme but but the Buy point us or of die. that, you know, the point of that is it comes back to just sort of what you were saying of this point is I have power. Mm-hmm. I can use it, but I know I have these 10 chips and when I cash them in, that's it. Is it worth it? You know, magic has a cost and it's not just I'm going to go to sleep and get it all back. Mm-hmm. It's when I use out my power then i'm gone or even like in in saga the graphic novel like the guy yeah, has yeah. A, a slight yeah, control yeah, yeah. of magic but sometimes he's like i need you to tell me a really dark secret no, i can't make saga, this spell happen that. yeah and i just love little flavors where like this sympathy involved in needing to manifest these things and mm. and that was very much when i was talking about the the wizard magic before yeah. i said sacrifice it could be something simple like someone has to take five hit points but it could be something right. like that where you have to forget something you have to give something up i, I wrote this terrible short a while back but in this world there was this simple idea of magic where you had to use something that had built up the abstract mm-hmm, of a thing mm-hmm. in order to cast it. So one example he has is that he takes a soldier's cap, which he had used pre- re- repeatedly to cover his eyes so he could sleep on the job. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He takes that, he blows into the hat, and he puts several people to sleep. Mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. idea was that he had to use right. up this built-up abstract. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things, again, just randomly flipping back to Phoenix, but it's a concept that could have been used anywhere, uh, we had a little magical gift that you could acquire, so to speak, like a fey boon, you know, sort of thing. But the the point is you have this thing, when you play it, you can basically add a bonus to your result, you know, gain greater power, but you pick someone else in the party Mm -hmm. and they have to tell you a terrible secret. Mm -hmm. And it has to be worse than the previous secret that you have learned through this uh, this power. And if it's not, you lose the power. So it's basically you get to keep this thing uh, and it cycles through. It's not like you use it every round or something like that, you know, but but basically you keep this thing as long as people can keep coming up with increasingly terrible secrets to reveal. And so it ends up both building the story, but also making this interesting choice of I pick you. Can you tell me something terrible? And if you you know, it's up to you to say, no, I can't. So right yeah. now, I'm taking multiple ideas that we've had through this mm-hmm. one conversation. Oh, you're taking, and Jack is taking extreme notes throughout this session. I'm <laughs> excited because I will ask for them later. So I'm very excited about this. And so you were talking earlier about the idea of like this clerical economy, that there's a god economy that you mm-hmm. have to build up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you talked about the idea of making vows in order to cast spells. Mm-hmm. The idea that at any time when somebody calls upon any kind of deity, they have to give them something, whether yep. it is promising to commit some horrible act later or yep. promising that they will never again eat meat or do and- something weird. 
to get their magic. And and this is the point to me on the vows I was describing earlier, is the idea is the vow increases based on the power of the thing, and the simple mm-hmm. one could be like, I won't tell a lie for the next day, or I won't do, you know, I mean, it could be a small thing versus the, this is a life-changing, I will never tell I'm a lie. Chills. Right, or like uh, the comic die that I, I mm-hmm. kind of forced on you, the, the, the character who has the ability to channel the gods. It's mm-hmm. literally every time, call on any of the yep. gods, but has to do something in return and, to them. It's a favor yep. thing. And the, you know, twist on it, especially mm-hmm. in this kind of situation is if you can lose the benefit if you break the oath that is to say i heal you for 10 points of damage nice because you promise never to lie if you lie boom 10 points of damage yeah i love that you know and so if you build up enough healing and some gods take interest exactly and you know it's the uh is it worth it you could have safe gods like gods of home and heart. Sure. Okay, yeah, you, can, yeah. you can make your stew. If you fail, then you will become you know, horribly right. ill or something like that. And it's not a big deal. It's like real world. It's like, I didn't follow food code, so now I have food poisoning. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Blame the gods. And then there are other gods where you get such a small benefit, because you, but because you tapped into this one, like the god of war, for example, right. the consequences of, of making a deal with war are devastating. Well, and that's actually very much the game I was talking about that I'm in right now is that concept of we're in this sort of prison. Uh, there are, I think, 10 gods in this setting. No. And there are, if we find their shrines, we can gain concrete in-game powers. Nice. But it's by making deals with these gods. Yeah. And, and like, it's, do yeah. you want, who do you want to make a deal with? Right. You know, like, <laughs> let's make a the deal. War right there, but do you actually want I love to uh, establish a relationship with the god of Some war. Some gods you just step around carefully. Exactly. Like, yeah, it's like it's like that guy you have a conversation with one time and then every day he sends you a Facebook message and you're like, man, I or wish it's like, in fact, I'm going to go back to Pokemon. Like, you yeah. get, accidentally get a phone and call from someone you're never going to meet again. You get a phone call every fucking day from the same person. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I so, like the idea that gods can be like weirdly selfish and pointless too. Like the god of like harvest <laughs> is like, yeah, your, your cows are going to be healthy. You're always going to get it. But the best cut, you got to give it to me just bury it in the ground I'm not gonna eat it I just want it I, <laughs> I will say the funny thing is one of the other I, I told you with the fantasy setting search I submitted seven ideas right one of the other ideas was actually a setting that was much more about transactional gods nice uh, I think it was called like strange gods or something like that mm. and it was more that idea that individuals could have a uh, sort of personal and gods a, and there's a lot of ways to interpret the god aspect of that like whether mm-hmm. the god is receiving faith energy or some other thing mm-hmm. like, there's a lot of ways to give it real meaningful like yep. stakes but i've always liked um something i mean it came up in the movie for constantine even though the movie wasn't eh, very good with the comic mm-hmm. i liked the idea that there's like almost a bet going mm-hmm. like let me see what i can get these people to do in <laughs> codex which i talked about earlier the world i was developing before phoenix yeah uh, one of the, the twists I had in there is that I was thinking about the world in three different time periods. Okay. And so sort of developing the setting sort of that you could pick one of these periods to play in. And nice. one period was this sort of mythic age when essentially gods do walk the earth. And like, if you want magic, you get it by talking to the wind and making a bargain. Okay. Uh, but then the gods essentially fight a terrible war and leave to keep from destroying the world in the process. Mm-hmm. So the next era is the Renaissance when we're discovering, oh, magic is still in the world. But now you essentially have to use science to activate it, to tap awesome. it. You can't just talk to the wind, but the power's still there. Is there any crossover? Like, you go from one time to you another? You could, yeah. certainly. Uh, and then the third setting is essentially the cyberpunk future of oh, this yes. world, except with 
magic instead, you know, that, so you're seeing how does it evolve from the Renaissance to this? Yeah. Kind of chrono, not to like a weird comparison, but like where you're literally like in the same continent, but through different eras. What are magical weapons of mass destruction? What's Mm -hmm. the magical equivalent of the internet? What's, you know, so on and so forth. Um, one of the things of that, the Renaissance was the period I was mostly focusing on, but one of the ideas I decided was that in this setting, angels and demons are actually time travelers. Okay. That they are coming from an even further point in time. And it's the principle of sufficiently advanced science looks like magic. Uh-huh. Well, sufficiently advanced magic mm-hmm. looks like really super magic. That the idea is that this thing that we look to as a demon, as he's just crazy and male magic demon, you know, that has all this superpower, it's just he's a wizard from the future whose magic is so much better than yours. Right. Yeah. That and that basically there was a sort of terminator thing going on where they're trying to control the future and so the point is when they come down and they say i will give you wealth uh but i want your soul and i want you know you to kill that guy (laughs) that the point is he can't take your soul you don't even yell that that's there is no soul economy he's telling you that because he doesn't want you to question (laughs) Uh, what he wants is he wants you to be wealthy because that's part of his scheme and he wants you to kill that or he could be like go bury a bunch of gold in the spot every year and then in the future where i'm from i'm gonna dig it up (laughs) but the point is that the those bargaining you know that who says he actually wants or even can take the thing that you think he's taking? He actually is doing it because he's setting up a, a future event. Well, and if you look at it from a human psychology perspective, um, if you promise somebody, if you just give somebody a bunch of shit, they're going to be skeptical, questioning, exactly. and want exactly. to try to find a way to screw you back. Right. But mm-hmm. if you give them this ominous thread of what happens if your soul is gone, suddenly you're not going to look a gift horse in the mouth. You're going to keep quiet. You're going to follow the rules and just do it. It is exactly that. I'll say completely random thing. Uh, one of the early things I did as a freelance role-playing game uh, designer is I wrote a source book for the Buffy the Vampire Slayer role-playing game oh, yes. based on the initiative, and it never got published, but it was a whole initiative source book, and part of what was fun about that was saying, let's look at how different conspiracy theories would fit into the Buffy universe. <laughs> one of the ideas I had was that Majestic 12, you know, the whole Area 51, Little Green Men, mm-hmm. you know, sort of thing... That in the Buffyverse, they're actually dealing with demons. But okay. that the point is, they're telling everyone they're aliens because that's more publicly palatable. Right. It's easier that to sell. greys, those are all demons. Uh, but anyhow, so it comes back to that point of exactly that's the idea of saying that, well, it's not weird that this guy comes and just wants to give me a whole pile of money because he's going to take my soul. And but that the whole idea within the setting is actually no, what no, if, they're we, really not. <laughs> we've talked a lot about like gods and like offering them mm-hmm. services and things. What if like in all fantasy settings, this is a weird off the dome thing, but like the most powerful god is like the god of adventure storytelling, mm-hmm. like and not in the DM <laughs> sense, but like literally every fetch quest you do in which you were rewarded gold <laughs> or some magic item is literally through his hand in exchange for you getting a good story out there. <laughs> He's the one that put those pieces into place. I had a really fun idea for a race of people whose whole mentality their whole culture was based off of story economy Mm -hmm. so to them the most important thing was a good story so they might be sitting there having a conversation with their friends and they're like do you want to be a really good story if we went and murdered the lord's daughter right now Mm. and then they're like well we have to do it now and then they just get up and do it but what if they also could like assimilate stories from other cultures like we're gonna go wipe out these people who have this really good like musical tradition (laughs) and we're learning all about it destroying it and it's ours now I'm just putting together a bunch of different things we've said now going back to exalted with the game of the gods Uh, And saying, if you imagine that the gods are essentially playing a big MMORPG 
and that yes. the clerics you are literally gold farming for them right. <laughs> that it is they do just want you to do the stupid fetch quest five times because you know they're just building up you, you know it's it's pokemon go they just need to get <laughs> whatever uh, whatever deity rolled my account is. the deity was playing law right now like i am sorry you should have re-rolled a long time ago it's not an interesting <laughs> this campaign is a bad build this is a bad build why did you build my stats this way you asshole <laughs> so i have another question and this one's a little bit more um uh, i don't know private mm-hmm so feel free if you if you want to answer honestly, I will be happily willing take to take my it. shorts off. Like that's like, <laughs> I'll be happy willing to cut if you don't do want to put to this down. Yeah. So I've done a lot of personal story writing and world building, and I do a lot of that stuff just because it's fun for me. But every once in a while, I create something that I immediately regret. Oh yeah. Hmm. I include uh, a a piece of the world, a piece of magic, an idea, mm-hmm. and then immediately my friends, my my readers, whoever just jump on it and all of a sudden it's this thing that I have to deal with. Is there anything in Eberron or any other big creation that you've ever done that you immediately wish you could retcon? Well, I mean, Eberron's a weird choice on that because it was a collaboration. You know, I gave the core idea, sure, but sure. it's something that happened with um, uh, with a group of people. And so I will say, certainly, like, just looking to the original edition of Eberron, one of the things is history is too long. Mm. You know, I would definitely, if I were starting from scratch, doing it all over again, and it's not a problem. It's not like I'm like, oh, I can't play it because of this. I sure. don't feel obliged to change it. But if I were doing it uh, sort of from scratch now, I would definitely reduce the scope of history. Taking, for example, Galifar with its thousand-year history, I would definitely say two to three hundred years is sure. perfectly I, good and focus a lot more on what happened yeah. during that time. Like I even noted, like, reading Eberron, I was like, this history is incredibly long. Like, yeah. even going from, like, fantasy it's settings. It's tricky when you have creatures like elves who, at, in 3rd right. edition, could theoretically live a thousand years. That that really sort of changes up sort of how history works. But that is one thing. I will also say the original map scale of the world mm-hmm. was way too big. The original mm-hmm. population numbers of the world were way too low. So, right. like, if you're just actually looking at it, I just look, work this by ignoring them. You know, yes. there are as many people in this city. It's a crowded city. That's all I need to know. I don't care about the precise yeah. density per per square city. But it is just the fact that by those numbers, uh, that is a problem. Um, so, one example that I love actually came up when we were uh, mm-hmm. with Daniel Pickens-Jones from Orcs, Orcs, Orcs. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we were sitting there doing uh, the D21 sides, he talked about uh, Black Company a lot. He really mm-hmm. likes Black I Company. I love Black Company. Black Company and is he, great. he mentioned something about it that I instantly cringed at, and mm-hmm. that was something about magic carpets. I brought up the magic carpet. He was oh, like, why, like, why don't you like Black Company? And I was like, it's well written, but I didn't like, this. the pacing was weird, and then it's supposed to be low <laughs> magic and gritty, and then suddenly they're on magic carpets <laughs> talking to God, flying everywhere. So that's one of those things that I think to myself, like, man, d- does does he regret that? Yep. Does he did he write that and instantly yep. go, oh fuck me, that was a terrible plan? Or like, I, um, like George R. R. Martin when he first started <laughs> writing about Song of Ice and Fire, he told himself, I'm not gonna put dragons in this fucking book, mm. and then he put dragons in the book, and I think to myself, did he regret putting dragons in this book? <laughs> I I do have to say, you asked about things I created, so sure, like Eberron, sure. that's that's the thing. But I'll say the biggest example t- of this to me is actually mm-hmm. just a small game I did. Uh, in high school and so you know it's just one of those early you know running games with with friends deep cut Uh, (laughs) but basically in this uh, story there's an altar in the woods it was sort of like a weird pet cemetery twist Mm -hmm. there's an altar in the woods and if you kill someone on the altar 
you absorb their life force and gain power. All right. And the principle of, of the story was that it was this sort of Wendigo situation where uh-huh. there's someone killed uh killed people and basically sort of got hooked on the the power and had become this sort of inhuman thing but the idea is the players don't know what's going on they've just got to find you know who's killing people what's going on and at some point they're going to find well there is this altar what do we do with it you know it's just it is this danger Mm -hmm. um I decided as they're exploring the mysterious forest that when you kill someone on the art uh the altar their body dissolves into dust okay uh sort of ash and that this had originally been created by this ancient civilization that used it to create sort of superhuman champions and, you know, empower <laughs> Just empower a bunch things. of ash. They really yeah. needed a lot of ash And quickly. so what I said <laughs> was that, oh, there is this thick layer of ash on the mm-hmm. floor of the forest. It's just this weird thing that, you know, there's no volcanoes, nice. but like, why is there, you know, a couple of inches of ash totally. just on the floor? And the whole point is eventually they'll find out. It'll be creepy. Right. But then I'm like, oh, but it has to be weird. So I'm like, oh, and it's raining and the ash isn't clumping it isn't getting wet so Hmm. you all understand what happened next which is that the players abandoned the story to get into (laughs) making rain gear because they're like if we take this stuff and we like glue it onto clothes or something we can make waterproof Clothing. So and the I'm nature like, is letting so players do things. So we had two adventures yeah. of of them uh, trying to get into the magic raincoat business. Wow. Uh, and you know, yeah. Why? And it was just it was just a <laughs> random detail. And I ran with it because I'm like, okay, fine. If this is what you want to do, it's like when know. in second edition we learned that quarter staves were free, mm-hmm. and we went to a mm-hmm. culture in one DM's world where wood was very rare and sold for a high price. And we just <laughs> loaded up wagons full of free quarter staffs from fucking Calamar or whatever. And brought them over and made a mint. Um, or like in League, when I decided there was these weird torches in an ancient god of dichotomies uh, that half of them emitted darkness and the other half emitted light. And Michael just kept trying to get the orb of light off the wall because he wanted an orb of light darkness. And I'm like, no, it's stuck to the wall. You I can't love, have it. I, I love you, Michael. I literally cut half of that out. I, I do... <laughs> I do have to say one of the things that, uh, you know, sort of going back to a bunch of things we've talked about, one of the things I do love in a story is when I'm discovering the world mm-hmm. through the story. And that's what I've sort of said about, you know, the game I'm playing now is I don't know, you know, uh, what I'll find out next time. And one of my favorite role playing games, you know, that I've run sort of experiences that I've had mm-hmm. What was a game in which I told all the players uh, we were using Hero System, and I said this is going to be a sort of cyberpunk superhero Judge Dreddy sort of thing. Like you Sick. are going to be the supernatural, uh, not supernatural, the sort of sci-fi, mm-hmm. a cyborgy uh, police force of this particular city. Dope. Um, told them all that. Everyone makes their you know mid mid powered characters. Uh, they're all ready to go. And then what I didn't tell them was that it was entirely a Lovecraft campaign. Ah. That as soon as they get into it, weird creatures from beyond space and time start messing with things. <laughs> like this one city is essentially eaten by Azathoth. They ended up running into basically something that was essentially a ripoff of The Thing. 
so it was the whole point of right. shapeshifters that eat people and spit out copies of them. And it's back to the, well, I've got all these great powers, but how on earth do I figure out who around me is is a scary alien monster? One of my favorite Hell examples yeah. of those is a friend of mine who ran a game where he told everybody to make Roman centurions mm-hmm, and things mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. And he like he like yep. rolled dice to see what like rank you were, etc. Then they started the game, and immediately the first thing that happened is they get catapulted through time, and mm. they show up in the middle of a museum in like 2003. Nice. And now suddenly they're a bunch of like highly trained Roman <laughs> centurions, and their first reaction was. Oh, we're going to conquer this place. <laughs> and Oh, DMs, you crafty shitheads. And what I love was it. great about this game is, mm-hmm. you know, the difficulty of, a, of, say, Call of Cthulhu is that the players know they are unlike most Lovecraft protagonists. Yeah, there's The like, players know they're in a Lovecraft story. Mm-hmm. You can already see and through the fourth wall kind of thing. The like. issue is here, the players literally had no idea, like, that. what was going to happen next. And that they were legitimately mystified and, and sort of investigating you know if you will now the danger is i would not do that just with any group of players because it's a dick move (laughs) they thought they were going to have a cyberpunk superhero game and so what i'm saying is that i knew this group of players and i was right like they did love this experience right that doesn't mean this is the right way to do things but it was great with this group. It's it's nice to get to really play test it when it was like that with people that you yeah. know. Because, of course, they're going to appreciate it. Yeah. And, I mean, that's just a good experiment in storytelling. This is kind of a throwback to when D20 Questions was just a small, humble YouTube series. But because Aww. we've been talking about world building this whole time, and I've been mm-hmm. doing more question asking than answering intentionally, is I want to throw in my fun little acronym that I have used for world building in the past that I think is cute and helpful in many ways. It's a, and, and, of course, the term is graphing, which brings up ideas for world building on its own. And it's real. I just promised I'd break it down. Um, so geography, obviously, how big is the world? What is it shaped mm-hmm. like? What is the, you know, the system of water versus mountain type stuff uh races you know who lives there what are the creatures that inhabit the world uh advancement that's both technological and magical like Mm -hmm. how far along are they in each of those categories pantheon is Mm -hmm. there one is there a religious system in place are there gods that watch everything we've talked about that a lot yeah uh history uh which is you know how far back does it go how much of it's important what's lost what's Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. present uh, ideals. What is good in this world? What is evil in this world? How do they measure the, the the civilized kingdoms versus the bad ones? Things like that. Like what is what makes law? Well, mostly, um, I'd say liquor. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, uh, next is nature. You know, it's on top of geography. There's like how how big is the world and what is the scale of mileage and everything. But then there's like what lives here what's the ecosystem and my favorite question for that is when you look at the sky what do you see Mm. like that Mm. kind of thing Mm. is the real estate of the ocean used only for water or more areas of air like underwater cities and things like that Mm. Uh, and then government the last one is what is the actual that's really focusing on the laws because one is like what is the general theme of morality and what's okay but then there's the actual like government systems in place although part of the issue to me is when you get to government ideals and religion Mm -hmm. those are all things that likely are not universal for an entire exactly. world and dependent on each culture. other based on where you are the one of the things that i would add to that list mm-hmm. is that ties to nature but mm-hmm. wanting to call it out specifically is resources sure what sure. is valuable 
in this world and why is it valuable right. it comes back to the the if raised dead is a thing then diamonds are suddenly an incredibly valuable resource right almost an economy thing but exactly. more in a grand it's scheme. basically you know if there's magic does magic use something you know what are the things that people in this world care about you know because part of the point is that's one of the things that will make nations certainly, successful certainly. is they have something other people want and uh, so, you know, and that can be looking to Eberron, for example, one of the points we say there mm-hmm. is manifest zones, right. which are essentially a combination of nature, magic, and geography mm-hmm. uh, of saying there are places in this world that have critical magical effects and that those are going to be the places just as we have our biggest cities on rivers, on trade lines, mm-hmm. you know, in Eberron, most major cities will be built on some kind of manifest zone because yeah. if there's weird, cool magic effects out in the world, people are going to harness them. See, and that's the advice of a, a professional spoken well and very eloquently and right on point. Uh, and I think that's a great time to say, give us one last plug for anything you're working on right now, any URLs. I know you're doing your, your blog right now with Project Raptor. Um, so give us all the details on that for our, uh, fair enough. our farewell to arms here. Uh, you can always find me at keith-baker.com. Uh, and that's where I talk often about Eberron, about things I'm working on. Um, my game company is Together Studios, T-W-O, um, and you can find me at togetherstudios.com or Together Studios on Twitter, um, and I'm also Hellcal Keith on Twitter. Hell yeah. Interesting, and give us one more last, like, explanation of what's going on with Project Raptor. What can we look forward to? What should we expect? Well, Project Raptor is, uh, again, a book in which I'm going to be sort of exploring different parts of Eberron that that we've never really had a chance to see from the plains to just other interesting parts of the world. I will be on my website and uh, on Facebook. Uh, we'll be sort of revealing pieces of it as we go over the next couple of months. Uh, and I will say we're creating a lot of... Um, you know, new art specifically for the book. Nice. And there's a lot of really, uh, really interesting pieces that are coming up that we'll be sharing. So is this, is this book going to be anthological or is it going to be like a specific character narrative or is it like, um, like a textbook, like, like informational? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting because when I was working on the setting codex that I told you about, uh, the reason it was called codex is that part of the concept was that the main book of the setting would actually be, so to speak, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy of this setting. <laughs> that the the Codex mm-hmm. Meridia was this this book in the setting and that totally. this would be what you'd have. Uh, in this case, uh, it is more of an anthology, if you will. You know, mm. more sort of there's a couple core types of thing that we are exploring that I am exploring. Uh, and so there will be sort of different sections that are, in a sense, you know, the planes, for example, I will go out and say, that is a particular section. Uh, but there are a couple other sections that explore different types of thing. So like a mix between mm-hmm. anthology and encyclopedia. Exactly. Ooh. Wow. So kind of like almost like, almost like the Cimmerillion, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited because it's you getting to stretch the muscles for some of the lore in Eberron that you've been wanting to really expand on for a while. And, and that's just the thing is that there's definitely a couple of pieces that I've always really liked about the world. And that, again, as I said, we've just never gone that deep into. Awesome. And uh, I'm really enjoying getting to finally show what it's all about. And this might here. well actually be the first thing I read in the Eberron universe. So mm-hmm. uh, very be prepared for that. <laughs> uh, we, we have kind of a silly throwaway question we do near mm-hmm. the end, which is just uh, in, in the terms of basic D&D, what mm-hmm. do you think would be your racing class? <laughs> 
Hmm. It's uh, such a goofy question, but see, it's always we fun. always get good answers. See, I have to say that I would probably go for uh, being a gnome bard, mm-hmm. uh, but that's because in Eberron, gnomes are scary. You do not want to mess with gnomes. <laughs> um, we uh, got we got to clarify. Like next time we talk, ask somebody that question. We're like, hold on, are we talking about like are, are we talking Eberron about Eberron gnomes? gnomes? <laughs> I'm just like saying Eberron a... gnomes. Although I do have to say, I do have the mark of finding. Oh. Uh, wow. So the dragon mark of finding, which technically would make me a human artificer, but you gotcha. know, there you are. Well, that's a, that's <laughs> definitely very on brand with the uh, the storytelling of Eberron itself. Uh, well, it's been an absolute delight having you here, Keith Baker, or as we are going to start referring to you, Eberron Jeremy, <laughs> if I can get that started. Uh, I, I'll wait for your consent on that one. Uh, we've had a great time. I could listen to you talk for another five hours, no problem, because it's informative and fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, but thank you all for listening to D20 Questions. Please check out our Patreon. Uh, it's new, and it's growing really fast, and we're excited by that, because it means we can keep making more content for you guys uh, check out the league of ultimate questing at slapdashstudios.com as well as all of the d20 questions episodes you can get bonus content from d20 questions on patreon d21 side where we kick back and just have some fun and goof no topics which we're about to record right now which we're about to record right now so if you want to hear keith's mm-hmm. d21 side check that out um, follow us on social media they're all very easy to find on slapdashstudios.com reach out to us we love talking to you guys and uh until next time join us for d20 questions when we teach you that druids can create their own language but thieves can't <laughs> <laughs> <God damn laughs> very nice it.